You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Skylit, the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Justin Reamer. And today I'm so excited to welcome Melissa Anderson and Erica Balsam to talk about their new books that are part of Fireflies Press's Decadent Editions. The Decadent Editions is a series of 10 books about 10 films, one for every year of the 2000s. Each is a deep dive into a single film. These 10 essays shift attention away from entrenched classics and the churn of mainstream releases, spotlighting milestones of contemporary cinema. These are idiosyncratic studies by some of today's most compelling cultural critics, ambitious and insightful, yet playful and inviting. Together, the series offers an eclectic view of cinema in the first 10 years of the new millennium, a decade ripe for reappraisal. Melissa Anderson is the film editor of Four Columns. From 2015 to 2017, she was the senior film critic for The Village Voice. She is a frequent contributor to Art Forum and Book Forum. Her book is about the 2006 David Lynch film, Inland Empire, starring Laura Dern. Erica Balsam is a scholar and critic based in London. She is a reader in film studies at King's College London, a frequent contributor to Art Forum, Four Columns, and Cinemascope, and the author of four books, including An Oceanic Feeling, Cinema and the Sea, and After Uniqueness, A History of Film and Video Art in Circulation. Her book is about the 2004 avant-garde film by James Benning, Ten Skies. Thanks both of you for being here. And uh, why don't we start off with a few readings so the listeners get a sense of what your books are like. Fantastic. Thank you, Justin. Cool. Uh, I will go first. And I should preface the reading by saying I will, there are a couple of proper nouns that you'll hear me use. Those are Avenging Angel and Nikki slash Susan. Those are the names of the various avatars, the various characters that Laura Dern plays in Inland Empire, a film in which she's constantly shattering into different personae. The other term that you'll hear me use is Shadowland, and that is a reference to a term that Kenneth Anger uses in Hollywood Babylon. Shadowland being his way of referring to the seamier side of Los Angeles or more specifically Hollywood. Okay, I'll begin. Like the avenging angel, I often don't know what was before or after in Inland Empire, no matter how many times I've watched it. Recursive episodes proliferate in the film. At least three times Nikki slash Susan dissociates looking at another version of herself from another vantage point. The avenging angel enters an empty movie palace, here a de facto hall of mirrors. She sees herself on screen saying, watching it like in a dark theater. The nearly vacant cinema instantly recalls Mulholland Drive's Club Silencio, the mystical cabaret that Betty and Rita desired drunk after having sex, cab two in the middle of the night. 
and where their love story, if not their very identities, begins to unravel. But while revisiting Inland Empire, I began to see repetition, connections, across not only Lynch's, but Dern's filmography, and to the gruesome history of Shadowland. Where did you go? Where have you been? The Greek chorus asks Nikki slash Susan after she appears on Hollywood Boulevard, or more accurately, after she's back following a, following a time-space detour on that street again, where she will die soaked in her own blood. Their query closely matches, where are you going? Where have you been? The title of the Joyce Carol Oates short story, inspired by the real life Pied Piper of Tucson, a serial seducer and murderer of young women in the mid sixties on which smooth talk is based. Interiors are also echoed, refracted. Dorothy's residence in the Deep River Apartments complex in Blue Velvet is, design, is designed to destabilize. Her one bedroom flat, quote, appears to have been furnished, not to mention lit and photographed to fulfill the surrealist ambition of making everyday objects strange, end quote, as Dennis Lim writes. Living spaces also estrange, derange in Inland Empire. Often shot in distorting wide angles, the enormous rooms of Nikki's Hollywood mansion, replete with marble columns, Persian rugs the size of football fields, and ornate Louis Kahn's style furniture, seem suffused with dread. Their cavernousness reminds me of one of the more infamous two-page photo spreads in Hollywood Babylon, the trashed suite of San Francisco's luxury St. Francis Hotel, where silent film star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle held in 1921, a bacchanal to celebrate a new lucrative contract with Paramount. The revelry led to a seismic scandal in the movie industry. One of the guests, an aspiring actress named Virginia Rapp, died a few days after the party. Her ghastly demise would seem to anticipate Elizabeth Short's 26 years later. Arbuckle was arraigned on charges of manslaughter and rumors spread of his using champagne bottles and other objects to rape Rapp. Unlike another hulking man, Harvey Weinstein, Arbuckle was eventually acquitted after three trials. But despite being legally cleared of wrongdoing, Fatty, like Harvey, was shunned and unemployable, a pariah. Diabolical decor also dominates the shabby house where one of the Nikki slash Susan avatars lives. Its shag carpet is a vomitous green. Lip lamps emitting a sickly incarnadine glow especially seem gravid with sinister powers, much as they are in Mulholland Drive. This tumble down one story home somewhere in Southern California, its exterior sooty and stained recalls in turn the modest dwelling of Connie and her family, which has been in a state of disarray for several years as various renovation projects remain unfinished in the Northern part of the state in smooth talk. Connie's bedroom like that of teenagers everywhere is a makeshift shrine. Her fetish objects are eclectic. Her panda bear figurines slightly outnumber her multiple posters of James Dean, a brooding heartthrob one whom Arnold Friend tries to emulate and a famous disciple of the actor studio, just like Montgomery Clift, whose damaged visage 
stitched and reassembled after a car crash in 1956 that nearly killed him, assembles, assumes pride of place in Sandy's bedroom in blue velvet. Cliff's terror-stricken mug tells a story, presaging the look of unremitting horror and dread that creeps across Nikki slash Susan's face as it pushes up against the camera. That face, Dern's rubberized, weaponized face, articulates the story of Inland Empire most succinctly and cohesively. Great, thank you. Sure. Um, Erica, please read an excerpt from your book. Sure. Um, so 10 Skies for People That Don't Know is um, a film made up of 10, 10 minute long takes of the sky. And the book sort of mimics that structure with 10 chapters, one for each sky. And so I will read uh, the first one. It begins with a title card, white capital letters on black in a sans serif typeface. After a moment of darkness, a pale blue field appears smeared with a gauzy vapor that imparts a hint of rose. From the left of the frame, two white streaks jut out. They could be naturally occurring cirrus clouds, forms the amateur meteorologist Luke Howard first named in his 1803 publication, Essay on the Modifications of Clouds, assigning them the Latin word for curl, owing to their resemblance to a tendril or lock of hair. But these streaks do not especially curl. They extend straight across the sky with the determination of Barnett Newman zips, turn to a slight diagonal, only to then fade out. Their graphic regularity suggests that they might be man-made, lingering remnants of jets gone by. I stay with the picture, my mind wanders. Such contrails appear in the opening sequence of Jean-Luc Godard's Passion, where there is no uncertainty as to their genesis. An airplane is in flight, etching a path across the sky, sharp as a ruler-drawn line, tracked by a handheld camera and accompanied by a dramatic swell of music. The filmmaker Harun Faroqi says that Godard himself shot these images, which, quote, register the movements of his eyes, scanning the sky to see what it can tell us, never sure in advance of what they will find, end quote. The sky of passion tells us little, but this seems the point. It's an ethereal void against which Godard sets the narrative actions of worldly existence, cutting back and forth between the sublime vastness and brief introductions to the various characters who will populate the film. In conversation with Hiroki, theorist Kaja Silverman finds in this sequence two oppositions passion will stage and dismantle, heaven versus earth and documentary versus fiction. In the contest with heaven, earth wins the day. The sequence ends with the camera panning down to center a tree in the bottom of the frame, anchoring its visions of the sky to the fixity of the land. As for the second battle, it's not so different. Silverman proposes that passion begins with documentary and then move towards fiction. What starts as the presentation of a sky shorn of context is through montage gradually recuperated into the story world, becoming the sky that will shelter the film's characters. It's a double return to order. Faroqi, after whom Benning named a single 77 minute take of Passing Clouds in 2014, following the German filmmaker's untimely death, responds, quote, still, for the duration of this sequence, the sky is more important than earth and light more significant than narrative, end quote. That the sky would be more important than earth and light more significant than narrative, however temporarily, 
inverts the hierarchy of representation that typically governs the cinema. It's often said, and rightly so, that most films treat landscape as mere background for human action, but landscape gets a starring role when compared to the neglected heavens. And it's not only in front of the screen that we shy from gazing aloft. To be told that one's head is in the clouds is not a compliment. In 1897, a Nature article about cloud photography, a burgeoning passion at the time, posited that, quote, it's a commonplace to say that the phenomena that present themselves most frequently are also, also those that are least observed with accuracy and intelligence, unquote. John Ruskin, the art critic who in 1843 devoted five chapters of the first volume of his book, Modern Painters, to the truth of skies, declaimed, quote, we turn to the sky as a last resource in moments of utter idleness and insipidity, end quote. For him, the sky is, quote, sometimes gentle, sometimes capricious, sometimes awful, never the same for two moments together, All, almost human in its passions, almost spiritual in its tenderness, almost divine in its infinity, end quote. And yet, despite all this complexity, he says, we never attend to it. We never make it a subject of thought. Benning suggests that we should. After all, what image could rival the sky as an emblem of all that refuses narrative and its anthropocentrism? Only the sea, another love of mine. The topsy-turvy gaze of passion doesn't last very long. The skies of 10 skies, by contrast, last and last, each filling a 400-foot roll of film trimmed at the head and tail. Godard gives pride of place to the sky for the duration of a sequence. Benning does it for the duration of an entire film, 100 minutes. And unlike Godard, he keeps the frame still, shooting from a tripod, draining away any sense of there being a consciousness behind the camera searching for airborne events. There are no appearances of the land below, no bombastic music. The sky is not there to be tamed by story, not a literal atmosphere tasked with generating an emotional atmosphere. It is the film sinusure, a space of attention and drift, imagination and movement. In the first shot of 10 skies, beyond the clouds that may or may not be contrails, hints of the terrestrial world are present only audibly in the calls of birds and the hum of distant traffic. Over the course of its 10 minutes, the streaks fade and the blue darkens. A swathe of glowing gold rises up from below as an unseen sun sinks and the heights of the frame are pulled into night. From Newman to Rothko, the image slowly transforms before my eyes. Great, thank you so much. <clears throat> um, I guess I wanted to start the conversation um, both a little bit of, of how the two of you came to uh, be a part of the Decadent Edition series, but also why you picked these films, which seem so difficult to write about. Because <laughs> both both of your films in different ways seem like they resist like criticism. Um, and I guess just feel free to, to talk about that, so. Uh, I, I will start if I may. It was very simple. And to answer your question, Justin, about how I became involved, it was very simply a matter of uh, an amazing email sent to me by Annabelle Brady-Brown, who is one of the two geniuses behind Fireflies Press, very kindly inviting me to contribute to the series. Um, 
without hesitation, I said yes. And knowing that I, the the decade of films that I had to choose from, if I remember correctly, I think in her initial email to me, she said something like, preemptively, she said, I know you're a big fan of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. We don't want you to write about that because e either she said, you've written about it too much or the film itself has been written about too much, which is true. Uh, so I knew that if I wanted to write a small book about something, it would have to be a film that I would not mind revisiting over and over again. And then I, I alighted on Inland Empire because yes, even though it is a very deranging and disturbing and often baffling film, I knew immediately that I wanted the focus to be not so much on Lynch, but more on Laura Dern. And she is someone who I could rewatch and revisit repeatedly, no matter how bizarre the project is that she's in. My story, I guess, is very similar to Melissa's uh, getting an amazing email and immediately knowing that I would say yes, but not knowing right away what film I would write about. Um, and I think I knew from the beginning, I wanted to write about a nonfiction film of some kind, an experimental film or a documentary film. Um, and Ten Skies is a film I've loved for a long time, but I think one of the things that really drew me to writing about it was exactly what you say, that I thought it would be a kind of writing challenge to figure out how to write a book about a film that sort of at first glance seems to be gloriously empty. Um, and I think it's very interesting that there is this commonality between both of our books in terms of including some sort of reflection on the kind of problem of what it is to, to write about film. But I think in Melissa's case, she's writing about this kind of immensely complex object that almost invites like obsessive maniacal decipherment, um, which she avoids very smartly, I think, and maybe is truer <laughs> to the film for doing so. Um, but in my case, it's a film that sort of presents itself as this absolutely simple object, you know, but somehow I think both of them led us to the same place, which was some kind of reckoning with the task of criticism and the problem of kind of translating an image-based, time-based medium into something that will exist on the page. Well, if, if I may add, um, Erica, you, you use very provocative language. You use the term masochism more than once in your- <laughs> Maybe only once. Oh, I don't know. Do a, do a search of the document. But um, yeah, so I, I, I was so thrilled and of course <laughs> really understood. Wait, I think I have a direct quote here. Well, yes, on page 48, in fact, you talk about a masochistic feeling. Two pages before that you write, the film punishes she who writes about it. And wait, there may be one more other instance. <laughs> um, mm, this is a corollary. On page 95, you talk about in interrogating your own taste. So it seems that yes, for you, the challenge that, I mean, obviously it, it, in your wonderful and sinuous prose, you obviously take great delight in writing about a filmmaker and a film that you love, but yet you do 
mention the, the the masochism behind it. I mean, do you? So I do. I'd like to ask you a question, if I may. Is this okay, Justin? Sure. Can we oh, of course, ask of each course. other questions? Of course, yes. Do you think any act of analysis or interpretation is de facto a masochistic act? It's interesting because I think my first impulse would be to say it's a sadistic act. It's kind of almost <laughs> like enacting some kind of violence on the body of the film, mm-hmm. you know? But then on the other hand, like writing is really hard. And yes. it's, you know, it is like a sort of process of of suffering that that happens. And I think that there are maybe films that are kinder to the writer than the ones that we have chosen you know uh-huh. um so it's maybe it's maybe a sadomasochistic act mm-hmm. that um you know to some degree and to and and the balance between the sadistic side and the masochistic side can vary according to the writer in the film maybe 100% agreed and i i find it kind of interesting the way that both of your books kind of end up reflecting the films uh, like in in the form kind of reflect the films like yours has the 10 chapters with sort of like almost like thoughts coming off of each of the 10 skies and yours it doesn't fall apart but you you like you feel an like an unraveling like like you kind of admit like yeah like like I'm kind of flailing a bit here but like yeah oh no Justin those are all accurate verbs and adjectives. (laughs) I mean, uh, as I stated in the, in the monograph, the, the majority of the book was written the, the summer of 2020, a very deranging time. And also, I don't mention this in the book, but I've mentioned, I've talked about this in a couple of other interviews that I've done and with other writer friends. A big terror for me, I've, and I've discussed this with Erica, a big terror for me, I'm so used to writing, um, my normal word count is a thousand to say 2,500 words, but usually more in the 1,000 to 1,200 word range. range. Mm-hmm. And the monographs we were told had to be at least 15,000 words. And for me, the biggest terror was, I'll never be able to do this. How will I be able to do this? This, I mean, even though for most writers, this is an itty bitty teeny weeny word count. For me, it just seemed so gargantuan, I could never do it. So in order for me to write it and to meet the deadline, I broke it down very systematically that I had to write X number of words a day. And I, I think the number I came upon was 300 and I just had to start. And if often just starting meant whatever crazy thought was in my head that acted as a kind of prompt. And then I would just type. And then I didn't plan it this way, but as you mentioned, Justin, there's something very free associative about the text that, that does in a way mirror the, the very free associative nature of the film. Mm. That really wasn't by design, but I will say I'm pleased that that's how it worked out. That my anxiety about writing somehow worked quite felicitously with what I was, the film that I was, that I assigned myself to write about. Right. Um, I, I was curious for both of you, cause, cause you, because of the, the films that you chose, you, you both bring in outside elements 
Um, for Ten Skies, there's sort of almost a little history of underground filmmaking, and and for you uh, or for you, Melissa, it's it's sort of the um, you know in a way the 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 way that actresses are uh, uh, have had to deal with uh, Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know how to put it a, a different with way. Shadowland. Uh -huh. Yeah, the Shadowland. Um, but like. Like when, when I guess in the process, did these other elements come in and be like, well, this is what is going to inform the book? Uh, I mean, in my case, I would say it was from the very beginning. And maybe it's also tied to this thing that we were just discussing about a kind of mimetic impulse in, in the book, because um, it's not just, I think, in the sense that there are 10 chapters for 10 skies. I think this thing of kind of close attention and then drifting off to bring in these other kinds of concerns is also something that characterizes in a way the experience of watching 10 skies. I mean, it's a film where one's mind really does drift and is sort of meant to, you know, this is, I think, in some sense, the space that the film opens for you to inhabit as a viewer. And so when I was working on the book, I had 10 sort of sticky notes on my um, desktop. And I would just kind of when I would have ideas of, you know, different representations of clouds in the history of art or photography or different topics that I want to bring in, I would kind of put them in these various sticky notes and move them around and try and find a way to contain what I wanted to be there within the, the, the structure of the 10 skies. So I think that that digressiveness, you know, that the tension between digressiveness and focus is key to Benning's film. And so I wanted to mirror it somehow. And for me, when I first, I first started taking notes about questions or, or topics or themes that I wanted to address. And I first did that bef before the pandemic. So this must've been January or February of 2020. But knowing that I, I did really wanna focus on Laura Dern I had been thinking a lot about, um, there was a really great profile of Laura Dern in the, the Ransom Time in 2019 in the New York Times Magazine by a great writer, Christine Smallwood. And there's this very bizarre moment in that profile where she's talking about this incredible film she made as a teenager called Smooth Talk, a film with a lot of ambiguity a lot of unanswered questions, a, a lot of provocative moments, and a film that quite frankly, I do not think could be made today. I'm digressing. 100%, yeah. Yeah, I'm digressing, uh, I guess as is my nature, I'm, I'm digressing from what I was about to say. <laughs> and, and in any event, in this 2019 New York Times profile, Laura Dern, who at that time had become somewhat of a active spokesperson in the Me Too movement, she is asked to reflect on one of the more ambivalent or provocative moments in Smooth Talk. And she just completely disavows it in a way that I found very strange and disheartening and disappointing. And so th thinking about the actress 
as a spokesperson, particularly specifically within the Me Too movement was of interest to me, thinking about uh, the very strange fact that Smooth Talk is a film that Laura Dern more than once has kind of distanced herself from, but yet has said absolutely nothing but the most laudatory words about her work with Lynch, which, I mean, again, a filmmaker who I admire very much, but whose films are often, in Lynn Empire especially, you know, punctuated with scenes of some horrific violence toward women. So just, I, I wanted to, to think about the contradictions of some of Laura Dern's pronouncements. And yeah. that's, they work their way into the monograph. This like section on smooth talk is one of my favorite parts of the, the book. Oh, and I really, you. I think that there's like, in your book, there's a sense that there's this subterranean thread about like the um, reassessment or reappraisal or the constant reconstitution of the past in the present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a sense you're revisiting a film from, you know, the first decade of the new century, but also like each Dern performance sort of is a palimpsest of all of mm -hmm. her previous ones. Um, and then she has like her own reevaluation of her experiences, especially with, with Smooth Talk. But one of the things that I love that kind of you hold on to throughout all of that is always this sense of how ambivalent all of this is. And I feel like um, it's maybe, I was wondering, and this is my question for you, like, it's not stated outright in the book, but I felt that maybe there is a kind of unstated polemic in your book about the importance of ambivalence for film criticism in terms of like, you know, not looking to films for clear moral messages or for, um, yeah, models to live by, but instead like delving into the muck of it a little bit more. And the smooth talk episode for me is like a moment where you're really kind of maybe bringing that aspect, which runs throughout the whole book, like really to the surface. Erica Balsam, I feel so seen right now. <laughs> yes, yes. Hashtag team ambivalence. Mm. That is me. The last place I would look for moral instruction is in a motion picture for as much as I love them, for as much as I've, I have devoted all of my life to them. Yeah, I am not looking <laughs> to be taught how to live by films. I'm taught, I, I, I go to cinema, I seek out cinema to derange me, to destabilize me, to enrage me, to delight me. But but in terms of giving me an ethical code, I know. And yeah, I really, um, I, I, there was, there was something really, I have to go back to, I have to speak, I, I think more, more strongly about reading Laura Dern from the, from the vantage point of 2019, looking back on what to me is one of the best performances of, one of the best performances by a, an adolescent, a teenage, an adolescent girl actor, and one of, one of the smarter films about adolescent girl sexuality. 
and for her to just, I mean, for whatever complicated reason, and by no means do I, am I wishing to um, scorn Laura Dern, who is, who is an actress I, I hold in the highest regard. But yes, just the crushing disappointment when she just wanted to wipe her hands clean of, of, of this film in, in what to me is uh, a film that I think, I think would be great if every teenage girl could see even in 2022. I mean, again, as, as we were just discussing a moment ago, I, I don't know how it could be taught. I don't know how many thousands of trigger warnings would have to, would have to preface the film, but I do think um, there, there's something very sad to me that I don't think a film like this could be made today. And I, th I think there's something that's, that's really lost in that and by that. In an odd way, too, uh, it's it's hard to uh, how's this for a segue? It's hard to see Ten Skies in the format it was intended to be seen in because there there isn't there isn't like film projection in that way, especially for uh, outside films, underground films, um, and and you talk about basically for the, for the book watching it again and again on a digital file. Um, how, what's, what's even the question here? Um, uh, how, how, here's something, okay. How, how did your relationship to the film change over the course of having to re-engage with it again and again for the book? I think, um, the, my very first viewing of the film, um, I really thought it was a sort of like, masterful work of light and time and this kind of empty formalist film. Um, and I think part of what drew me to writing about it was that, you know, in the years that followed, I realized that I had my first viewing had been completely wrong in a way. I had gotten the film wrong, or at least um, I had only sort of scratched the surface of it. And in fact, you know, there were all of these other things happening in the film. Um, and so as I watched it again and again, those were the kinds of things that I wanted to delve into more. So there are sections in the book about, yeah, the iconography of clouds, about um, the verticality of the war on terror, um, about, you know, the status of photochemical film circa 2004. And so I began, or the relationship to early cinema, for instance, and so I started to sort of see all of these other things as coming in. Um, but um, yeah, the film is available on YouTube, so anyone can watch it. But I think that more than virtually any other film, this is a film that really demands to be seen in a cinema and on its, um, you know, in its original format. And so the film changed immensely for me again, when finally, after the book had been published, I got to see it for the first time in a cinema since, you know, my initial viewing, which was in 2008. Um, and that was uh, in July at Light Industry. And that screening in, in Brooklyn and that screening was completely amazing. It might be the best film screening I've attended in my life. And part of the reason why was it came kind of first 16 millimeter screening after the pandemic for me. 
um, but also it had such a kind of uh, such a character of an event of a live event you know in common with people there were lots of sort of like funny and strange things that happened at the screening um and it just really kind of um made me think a lot about the collective situation of cinema as um you know not the film as a text let's say but the film actually as like a shared space and time um and so that was a sort of huge shift from me sitting at my laptop obsessively scrolling through this tiny low quality youtube file and erica have there been other have you introduced other public screenings since the light industry event in july yeah, so uh, a few different places um, in Europe um, and each one is quite different. And I've also been seeing the same print multiple times and now I've seen sort of three different prints of the film. Um, and so that's also interesting, you know, the kind of objecthood of this thing and the print is gradually getting increasingly damaged. Um, and, you know, it is quite a tough film in certain ways. But I think, um, you know, after the light industry screening, there were these guys who were, I don't know, maybe 20 or something. And they had like driven overnight from Illinois or Indiana because they, they were like, we read about this screening, we read your book and we just knew we had to be there. And so Incredible. that was like one kind of mentality, you know, but then mm -hmm. in other contexts, it's been maybe much more of an expected reverent avant-garde cinema audience. Um, so it really, it really shifts um, each time based on the local context. Yeah, uh, it, 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 talking about that just reminded me, um, they recently put out a Blu-ray of Ken Jacobs films, which mostly are silent. And I miss like the sound of a projector or someone creaking in their seat because it's just sitting in your home in silence is a bit odd. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, Can I ask uh, Melissa a question? Yeah, feel free, okay? feel free, feel free. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the actorist approach, um, specifically as something that's tied to like queer and feminist cinephilia, because I think that, you know, David Lynch is like not someone that we would associate with a queer <laughs> feminist cinephilia. <laughs> And that, oh no, <laughs> perhaps not. I don't know. But that's I for me, that's like part of the brilliance, you know, of the book. Um, and I think like you mentioned Kenneth Anger, you mentioned people like Boyd McDonald. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about like this particular approach to the star, because, you know, one way of thinking about the star in feminist film criticism is like as an encapsulation of all that's wrong with the way that female beauty gets packaged for a male gaze or something. Um, and you are obviously, you know, taking a very different route and kind of writing in the wake of a lot of very interesting people who have come before you. Um, I thank you for this un characteristically, unsurprisingly superb and brilliant question. And uh, yes, somebody who really uh, was was so so influential for me in, in thinking about stars as not problematic, but as as sites of pure delight is Patricia White and her incredible 1999 yes 1999 book Uninvited, 
colon, classical Hollywood cinema and lesbian representability, I think is the full title. She has several chapters devoted to stars and specifically to supporting actresses. She has an amazing chapter on Agnes Moorhead. And, you know, it's, it's an academic work, but you, you can sense the, del the delight that she takes in talking about supporting actresses. And Patricia White is somebody who, you know, really forefronts her own sexuality, her queer sexuality. So that was very, very influential. And I read that book, I think, around the time that it came out in 2000, I believe. And then, as you also mentioned, Boyd McDonald's, the reissue of his collection of criticism, Cruising the Movies, which I read in 2015. This really blew my mind because this is a gay male film critic right, who would often write about actors in terms of like how big their asses were or the outline of their cocks and how they oh, made them a better actor. Yeah. But he also has, I mean, this is a line I've quoted a bazillion times since reading it. I'm going to quote it again here. But he has this amazing line, which is simply, motion pictures are for people who like to watch women. This for me distills my entire cinephilia because yes, I am somebody, a big les, who likes to watch women <laughs> on screen, out in the world. And if this isn't too risque to mention, a, a good friend of mine, somebody who was a film critic for many years, a gay guy, and who left practicing the dark art of film criticism to pursue a career in academia, but who's slowly coming back. He read the book on Inland Empire and he gave me a very high compliment, called me up and he said, girl, that book is horny. And I thought, okay, thank you. This is something, <laughs> this, I mean, <laughs> this is something with what I, uh, that I was kind of aiming for with my woman Festo and in Inland Empire, which is that, and this is something Patricia White mentions. She says something like, cinema acts upon specific scripts of individual desire. And I think, and this goes back to what you asked me a little while ago, Erica, about ambivalence. Yeah, that I'm all about ambivalence in cinema, but I also don't want the desire, and you talk about this so brilliantly, about reclaiming that it's that it's imperative for feminist and feminist film scholarship to reclaim voyeurism or to think about women spectators as scopophiles mm -hmm. and never want this to be erased. And it terrifies me that this seems to be more and more the direction that, that a correct kind of film criticism or a correct kind of popular film criticism is going. I, I find this, yeah, there's no other word for it other than terrifying. This, mm. People don't do it. Don't, don't go that way. Bring back horniness in your film criticism. <laughs> yes, please. Teen, teen horniness is not a crime, to quote <laughs> Southland Tales. <laughs> Middle-aged woman horniness is not a crime. That's my motto. <laughs> well, that's an excellent note to end on. Um, hopefully when this episode goes live, hashtag team ambivalence will <laughs> just go viral. Um, Thanks again so much to our guests today, Melissa Anderson and Erica Balsam for chatting with us about Inland Empire and 10 Skies. You can pick up your copies of both these books and others in the Decadent Edition series at Skylight Books or order online at skylightbooks.com. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Thank day. Thank you, Justin. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.